The reading for this morning is from the first 20 verses in Mark 5. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you were a child, um, perhaps like me, you on occasion would say to your father or your grandfather, tell me a story. Tell me a story about when, right? Something in, in your background in your life. I used to love to hear those stories. I recall my kids asking me to tell stories. Mostly they wanted to hear stories about me when I made a fool of myself or something like that because it was funny. Imagine, though, that if your father or your grandfather was one of the gospel writers. Imagine going up to your grandfather or your father and saying, tell me the story about. Man, he would have some great stories. I think that if I was a kid and my grandfather was one of the gospel authors, I would go up to him and say, Grandpa, tell me the story about Jesus and the pigs. <laughs> because I know as a kid that would have fascinated me the most. Probably should have been the resurrection, but I would have thought this story was really cool, Jesus and the pigs. Because it's a bizarre story. And it's about good and evil. What I wouldn't have known as a child is it's not just an epic story. It's a theme, really, in the whole Gospels. This series we're in, the one and only, namely Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This story is a pronouncement concerning Jesus, 
the one and only of the Father. Sin and grace and truth. He pronounces authority over all evil, over all demons, and the devil himself, the one and only of the Father. Now, when you encounter stories like this, if you're from our generation, this 21st century world that we live in, you might approach it rather skeptically, right? We have a tendency to be, shall I say, a little bit more materialistic, more scientific, more skeptical that these kind of things really happen. C.S. Lewis uh, was a great author, as you know, I quote him often. In the preface to his book entitled Screwtape Letters, he addresses this tension, and he says this. He says there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall. Speaking of the devils, one is to disbelieve in their existence. One error. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the devils, are equally pleased with both errors. Now, you could take that in a lot of directions, but let me take it in this direction. Sometimes we either ignore the possibility of the demonic, or we can't become so overly enamored by the demonic that everything has to do with Satan. And we don't embrace our own difficulties and our own sin. We just blame it on the devil. That's possible too. Here's what we know about every single story of Jesus encountering darkness and evil. Every single story is guided with these primary motivations. Jesus speaks his authority over the demonic for the purpose of bringing mercy, kindness, healing, and peace. Jesus doesn't run into the community and say, where's the demons? Bring them on. I'm going to show you how powerful I am as Son of God. Not his disposition at all. He walks into communities, and when he sees the influence of Satan, he brings to bear, namely these things, mercy, kindness, healing, and peace. This story I want to break down into several parts. First, I want to break it down into the disciples and Jesus. In order to do that, I want to say something about what happened just before they arrived. We're only in chapter 5 of the book of Mark here. Lots of things have happened. Mark is a really fast-paced gospel author. A lot of things have happened. As a matter of fact, it's his second encounter with demonic forces. Furthermore, he's been healing the sick. He's been doing all kinds of miracles. He's been doing a lot of teaching. They've been overwhelmingly busy, according to the narrative, right? You're reading it like a book. These guys are exhausted. And Jesus, in effect, says to them, Fellas, it's time to take a break. We're really all tired out here. We need to get away. So let's get on that boat and go across the sea. They get on the boat and they start across the sea. You know, that had to be rather placid. It, it had to be rather relaxing to get away from the crowds and the busyness. It was so relaxing, as a matter of fact, that Jesus falls fast asleep in the bow of the boat. 
And while he's asleep, a big storm hits, which was typical for that region. And the boat is tossed all over on these gigantic waves. And the disciples are overwhelmed with fear, believing they were going to be capsized and die. And they shake Jesus awake and they say, Master, wake up. Aren't you concerned? If I was a director of a film on this, I would have a lot of fun with it. Jesus is sound asleep in the bow of the boat. He wakes up and the disciples say, What's the matter, Master? Are you? And he says, What? I'm trying to get a nap here. I mean, you know, it's so human, right? He's sound asleep, and there's terror all around them. And finally he wakes up, and he, he looks around, and he says, what's the problem? And they say, you don't see it? We're about ready to die here. Jesus looks around, and he goes, oh. And he looks at the wave, and he says, quiet. Settle down. And boom, the waves become placid. That's the story that precedes this. They're trying to get some peace. Once again, they're tossed by the waves. And Jesus, the one and only, has the authority to say, peace, be still. Now here we are, just having come off that miracle on that placid sea after the storm. He lands on the shore, and immediately he encounters this man who's possessed by a demon. He doesn't look him out. He doesn't search for him. He just lands on the shore. And here's the guy. It's almost as though the presence of Jesus is a catalyst for a conflict between good and evil everywhere he goes. So he lands on that shore, and a confrontation breaks out. Now, the other character in the story, the main one, the demon-possessed man himself. This man was as tossed emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually as the disciples had been tossed on that sea. His life was absolute chaos. As a matter of fact, he had isolated himself or been isolated by the community. They'd done what they could to control him. They chained him. They put shackles on him. And he broke them like they were strings under the power of Satan. They couldn't the text says, subdue him. You know what would be a perhaps more accurate translation? They couldn't tame him. It's the same word they frequently used for taming wild animals. They couldn't tame him. So, he lived among the tombs, either by his own choice or by exile. Instead of being around people, screeching and making noises and creating chaos in their lives, those people who could hear, he rushes to the tombs and through the night screeches and howls among people who can't hear him, the dead. It's a sad picture. A man cutting himself and living among the dead. Some speculate that the reason he lived there was because frequently first century people would bury their dead and then bring food and place it on the grave. And he may have supplied himself with food that way. This man was ostracized and tormented by demons. You know, the devil's purpose is always to destroy the image of God. 
This was a human being. This was a man who was once born as a baby. You parents, think of it. You remember looking at them in your arms. The pure innocence and beauty. He was once in a mother's arms. And now he's living a life of complete torment, contorted so that you can almost not see at all the image of God. That is the activity and the purpose of Satan. To take what is righteous and holy and good and pure and twist it and distort it and destroy the image of God. This demon has tremendous power. It's also interesting that the demon recognizes Jesus immediately. That in contrast to people all around Jesus who never really recognized who he was. They didn't see him for who he was. They didn't recognize him as son of God among them. But the demons immediately, they know who he is. On another occasion, when demons are confronted by Jesus, they say to him, Have you come to appoint, uh, have you come to torment us before the appointed time? They acknowledge his authority. They say, basically, I know you're in charge. I know you're going to destroy us in the end. Are you doing it already? In this particular case, they are just terrified concerning what Jesus is going to do to them. Jesus says to them, what is your name? Now, that might not seem significant to us, but in the first century, that was a significant question. When you ask the question concerning the name, it was to get a window into the soul of the person. Names really did mean something, and names were frequently attached to family. You wouldn't just be Bob. You would be Bob, the son of Robert. And that tradition, that whole heritage, would define who you are. So Jesus says, what's your name? And the response from the demon is legion, for we are many. The word legion is used among uh, Roman soldiers to identify a group of soldiers somewhere between four and 5,000 men. It would be a mistake, I think, to get all literal about it and say, then there must have been four or 5,000 demons. No, the point is this. When the demon speaks, he in effect is saying, there are more of us than represent this one voice. There's legions of us. This is overwhelming power. Does Jesus grab him by the throat and shake the demons out? Does he bring down the almighty judgment of God upon the demons' heads? Does he tear the man limb from limb? No, he doesn't do anything violent. He does nothing except say in a calm but authoritative voice, get out. Get out. And they do. But they beg not to be driven from the area. I guess they thought they had more work to do around there. Let us stick around. And Jesus says, okay. And he lets them, by their own request, go into the pigs. And the pigs go over the cliff into the sea. If you know anything about pigs, they don't swim very well, so they're gone. I mean, this is a comical story now, right? That's why as a kid I would have wanted this one told over and over again by my grandpa, gospel writer. This is a comical story. 
He puts them in the pigs and they go into the sea. What's even more comical about that is a reader in the first century who had a Jewish background would know exactly what the metaphor was here. An unclean spirit going into an unclean animal and going into the sea and dying. It'd be hard to miss that. It's almost funny. But the part that's not funny is somebody loses their livelihood, right? The owners of the pigs find out and they confront Jesus and the people of the town come to Jesus And now we're to the part of the story of the people, unnamed, just the people. And it appears that they were terrified by Jesus. They looked at this man who was otherwise a terrifying being, sitting in his right mind and calm, and they were terrified. Terrified of Jesus, the one who brings healing. Maybe they also were disturbed by the fact that they had lost their prophet. Or maybe both. Remember Acts chapter 16 when Paul and Silas go into Philippi and they're going to proclaim the gospel? There's a servant or slave girl that continues to follow behind them and shout out in a shrill voice, These are servants of the Most High God. Listen to them. These are servants. And Paul's really annoyed by it. And he turns around and he rebukes the demon, and the demon flees. The text says, And when the owner of the slave girl realized their hope of income was gone, they were angry. They owned her. The demon owned her. And they made money on it. In effect, it seems that the townspeople are saying, Don't disturb our prophet. Don't disturb our status quo. As a matter of fact, Jesus, we actually learned to deal with this demon-possessed man. Oh, he was a bother, but he's in the tombs now, see? He screams out there and not in our houses. I, I think we've got, I think, Jesus, we got this one under control, but Jesus, we can't control you, and you're scaring us. William Barclay has put it this way. They say, don't disturb my comfort. Don't disturb my possessions. And don't disturb my religion. Jesus, I like you, but stay out of my business. There's so many lessons in a story like this. It could go on for a long time, but I promise to make it short. The first lesson I see, and I've repeated over and again in sermons, is an obvious one. The world of the unseen is just as real as the world of the seen. We live in a world where empirical data is important. I look out at many of you on a given Sunday morning and I know that day after day after day you work in the world of science and medicine And you deal with facts, and you diagnose problems, and you see results or not, and it's all dependent upon the empirical data. And that's wonderful as far as it goes. But the reality is there's something beyond it, right? 
Science actually shouldn't hinder our ability to believe in the supernatural or the invisible. But sometimes it does. What we know is empirical data is insufficient to describe all of reality. That's what we know, don't we? Don't you know that? In an absolutely wonderful book that I'm reading, entitled, When Breath Becomes Air, a neurosurgeon is diagnosed with lung cancer in his 30s. He's at the end of his residency. His future looks limitless. He is a brilliant, cutting-edge neurosurgeon, getting offers from everywhere. And then he recognizes his own mortality. And for the rest of the time that he spends on this earth, he tries to do his job, and he tries to understand the deep meaning of life. This book, written right before his death, gives that story. I don't usually read long passages from books, but can you indulge me just as once? At one point in the book, he's talking about the meaning of life. I mean, apart from the empirical data. And he says this, although I'd been raised in a devout Christian family where prayer and scripture reading were a nightly ritual, I, like most scientific types, came to believe in the possibility of a material conception of reality, an ultimately scientific worldview that would grant a complete metaphysics. Metaphysics means the things above science, right? It means the spiritual. It would, this science notion would give a complete explanation for the universe. Minus, he says, the outmoded concepts of souls and God and bearded white men in robes. I won't do away with that. I spent a good chunk of my 20s trying to build a frame for such an endeavor. Yet I found that the paradox of the scientific method is the product of human hands. And thus, it cannot reach permanent truth. We build scientific theories to organize and manipulate the world to reduce phenomena into manageable units. Science is based on reproducibility and manufactured objectivity. We know that. Science, he says, may provide the most useful way to organize empirical reproducible data. But its power to do so is predicated, dependent upon, predicated on its inability to grasp the most central aspects of human life, namely hope and fear and love and hate and beauty and envy and honor and weakness and striving and suffering and virtue. It can't touch them, he says. Now, this coming from a neuroscientist, because neurology has led us to believe on many occasions from an atheistic perspective, that all those things just described could somehow be touched in the brain and fixed. And so we need not have a metaphysical alternative for any of this. 
He goes on to say this. Between these core passions, the ones I just mentioned, the virtue, the honor, the envy, the beauty, between these core passions and scientific theory, there will always be a gap. No system of thought can contain the fullness of human experience. The realm of metaphysics, just in the word religion, spirituality. The realm of metaphysics remains the province of revelation. You can't get there with empirical data. But it's real! As real as the empirical data of science. Here's the point, my friends. In simple words, there's a battle going on out there between light and darkness, between good and evil, and it's not just going on out there. It's going on in here. It's real. You can't verify it empirically, but you know it's true. The whole notion of it going on out there and us addressing the problem out there can be really damaging to our own understanding of ourselves. Because we're not immune from evil. Evil is like the cancer that didn't invade our body from the outside, but created the problem from within. Not all cancers come from without. They're cells doing things they're not supposed to do. Sin and evil are like that. Paul says, it's in your members, <laughs> right? It's in your flesh, your bones, your spirit. It's there. And if that's true, in order for us to confront the darkness, we can't just see it as out there. We have to recognize the influence it has on us. A, a number of years ago now, I told this story, but I'll repeat it again. It's a story that comes from 60 Minutes CBS when Mike Wallace was the major news commentator there. He interviewed a man named Yil Dinyor, who was a survivor of the Nazi concentration camp in Auschwitz. And his interview with Dinyor was an interview where he was trying to figure out Dinyor's reaction to Adolf Eichmann, the primary chief of torture and terror in Auschwitz. 1961, the date of my birth, they had a trial for Adolf Eichmann, and Dinyor was a witness. And when Dinyor saw Adolf Eichmann, he began to shake. Then he began to cry uncontrollably. And then he collapsed in a dead faint. Wallace asked him in that 60 Minutes interview, so what was it? Were you overcome by hatred or fear or horrid memories? Junior looked at him and he said, no, none of those. I was afraid about myself. I saw 
that I am capable to do this. I was exactly like he. He looked so sane, so well-dressed, so proper, so human. Like any great news broadcaster, Mike Wallace looks into the camera and he says, was Eichmann a monster or a madman or something more terrifying? Was he human? The reality of evil, my friends, (laughs) is something that we must embrace in order to even begin to understand grace The grace of God that comes through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ enters our world to reverse sin and death, to overturn evil. And part of that threat is in us. And so we surrender to him. Satan wants you. Did you know that? I know it's a scary thought. He wants you. He wants your soul Or to put it in the words of Jesus to Peter, Satan wants to sift you like wheat, Peter. But I want to tell you something else. I have prayed for you that you will not fall away. I want to tell you something else, Peter. I want to tell you that even though Satan has the power to sift the human soul, if you stay with me, Peter, if you walk with me, Peter, he can't take you. As a matter of fact, Peter, you might screw up really bad. Now I'm putting text together. Peter, you might say something to me like, Oh, Jesus, you can't go to the cross. That's beneath you. You remember what I said to you, Peter. I turned to you and said, Get behind me, Satan. You remember that, Peter? It's there, Peter. And Satan wants to get you. And you're going to get in his foil sometimes. But he can't have you because I've prayed for you and you're going to stay with me. Stay with me, Peter. Now, now on to the, the, the glorious good news at the end of the sermon. Here it is. Jesus has promised to defeat sin, evil, and Satan. You want to know what the book of Revelation is? Without even reading it, that's it. Jesus says, enough. There comes a time where he says Satan is going to be bound. He's going to be thrown into the absolutely bottomless pit. And he will never tempt my holy ones again. He will never destroy this earth. He will never create death. Sin and evil will not exist because I'm going to bind him forever. That day's coming, my friends. That day's coming in the future. And that gives me so much hope. But you know what else gives me hope? The already not yet. The reality that that day is already here. It's not just in the future. It's already here for me. When I trust Jesus, when he gives me forgiveness of sin, when he invades my life through the power of the Holy Spirit, in this place, right here and right now, death has been defeated. That's the already not yet. It has been defeated right here, right now, and it will be defeated completely in the future. That's incredible news. And really, 
It's what this story's about. Jesus says, I have authority over all of that, and I'm going to do it. You know, um, when we think about confronting evil, we can get rather verbose, can't we? We can get all riled up. We can curse the darkness. And really, it's easier to curse the darkness. It feels better. It even feels bolder to curse the darkness. But I don't think that's the way of Jesus. No, we're not Jesus. We don't have the same authority. But we stand within his authority. So how do we confront evil? Not with more violence and hatred and cursing, but with the love of Christ. Martin Luther King once said, the ultimate weakness of violence is that it is a descending spiral begetting the very thing it seeks to destroy. We need to be careful that we don't go there, right? So what do we need to do? Very simply, live as people of light. Imagine for a moment a dark, dank room full of all kinds of wickedness and evil. And the wickedness and evil is there because of the darkness. What's our job? Curse at the darkness? Destroy the room? No. It's to walk in with a light. That's who you are. That's a Christ follower. One who walks in with the light. Where's it going to be on Monday? Where are you going? Don't shout. Don't curse. Just walk in with the light. And God will do the rest. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that um, you've allowed us to be a part of this thing. This thing called the destruction of sin and Satan. We don't have any of the power to do it, but we know that you do. Sometimes we don't even have the faith to believe it's going to happen. But in our better moments, we know it will. We know that eventually your kingdom is going to come completely and your will is going to be done on earth just like it is in heaven. And until then, you ask us to pray for that. And you ask us to join in the process. So help us to look at the pictures and these gospels. And remember that you, the one and only from the Father, did these things in order to restore the dignity of humanity, in order to bring healing and hope and forgiveness and mercy and love. And then help us, Lord, creatively to figure out what that means tomorrow. Help us to be, truly, the hands and feet of Jesus in bringing light to our world. And we'll thank you for that. In the name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.